Welcome to the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Evans Hilton. I invite you to grab and eat, grab a drink, and get ready to think. Our podcast is a compliment to the Virginia Eats and Drinks show heard Fridays from 6 until 7 on AM 790 WNIS in coastal Virginia and broadcast everywhere online on WNIS.com. Tonight, my guest is Bay McLaughlin of First Landing Seafood Company in Virginia Beach. First Landing Seafood Company is a small, family-owned, veteran-led business in Virginia Beach. Three brothers, Bruce, Craig, and Bay McLaughlin, all raised to Virginia Beach, continue their family's oyster-growing and restoration tradition that started in 2004. And Bay, how's it going tonight? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, it's always a good time to talk about oysters, isn't it? (laughs) That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. I love those little shuckers. I'll tell you what. But uh, so, so tell me, tell me uh, a little bit about how your business got started. I mean, is it does somebody just wake up one day and think I'm going to start growing oysters? So, I mean, sort of. We all were born and raised on on the Lynn River, and you know, our father, grandfather, uncles, cousins, you know, all of us were sort of indoctrinated into trying to support the environment and specifically the Linhaven River where we all sort of recreated and ate and fished and crabbed and the whole thing. But when I was really young, probably seven or so, my uncle got into this restoration concept and started supporting growing oysters at my grandparents' house, which I was responsible for, you know, cleaning every day and coming up and doing all the work to support them and, you know, trying to make sure my grandfather didn't sit there and eat them all. <laughs> but yeah. then, uh, but, but then it, it sort of became more for my uncle and my cousins. They first really got involved in 2004, purchasing some of the leases that came up and were available um, when the Linhaven River started getting cleaned up a little bit. And we're a big part of founding the Linhaven River Now Project and supporting Chesapeake Bay Foundation and building all these reefs that were really helping to clean up the water and then allowing a new business to, to really start on the Linhaven River, which is oyster farming. So since then, it sort of passed through different hands uh, through my cousins, my uncle, and then they got out of the business about three, four years ago. And then when I came back for COVID, my brothers came back as well. And we sort of got the harebrained idea during our family's 4th of July uh, get-togethers that we have every year over some drinks saying, you know what? Why not? We should go ahead and get into the oyster business ourselves. So we were lucky enough that my uncle and the cousins hadn't sold everything. You know, they were trying to. We were lucky, good timing. We were able to get in there and, you know, buy some leases, buy some some barges and some boats and some cages and just kind of kick up the business and start learning, you know, just by doing is none of us have done it before. So we're just the kind of blindly in the blind, but we're lucky enough that my, my cousins and my uncle had been there you know, ahead of us. who could ask a couple of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and of course, folks that listen to me know my love of history and we all know the history of the Lynn Haven oyster. Tell us how your company is kind of, um, you know, using that as a as a platform and as a continuation of the the rich traditions and tastes that we have here well this is you know i really appreciate a lot of the people that have been documenting this because we've always you know just known it was a great oyster you know and, and ultimately didn't really appreciate until others had really explained to us the the amazing history that when the first settlers came and this is you know why we have first landing state park and when you you look at all the different amazing plaques and kind of historical markers in the the different park and the military base and all that area you see that there's been this um amazing sort of documentation of the first settlers hitting right there at cape henry coming through the forest and then running into um 
the the Native Americans and and seeing that they were oysters and, and open fire and uh, they were serving fresh strawberries and really really amazing story. I think it was documented in 1607 um, at the end of April, and it's it's really incredible to to think that the very first oyster, your know, America's first oyster, was found in our backyard, and so we we named our business First Landing Seafood Company in respect of, you know, the, the kind of all these people that and the heritage that came before us. And then later, as that oyster became more and more famous, um, it's actually told that the Queen of England used to demand the oyster by name, which she called the Linhaven Fancies. So yeah. we, we trademarked that name and we uh, are actually just about to launch the Linhaven Fancies uh, for public consumption. We've been working on it quietly for the last year. And, and our, our kind of thought was, we already named it after First Landing Seafood Company or First Landing uh, State Park and kind of, you know, pay respect to that entire history, but also like bringing back the name of the Linhaven Fancies as America's first oyster and doing our best to create the, the highest standard, highest quality to kind of global uh, high-end restaurant standards, but then available to, at all the restaurants here for all the citizens of Virginia Beach. So we're trying to make an oyster that everyone will love, be proud of, and, and really bring back America's first oyster. Absolutely. That sounds fabulous. So so you, you had mentioned the Linhaven Fancy, but let's start by talking about one of the other oysters that, that you're doing, the Linhaven Legacies, and tell us a little about that. Well, <laughs> this made me laugh because when we first went in to go getting uh, go get the oysters out that my cousins had planted, you know, three, four years prior, I mean, you pull up these cages, you see these oysters and you're just like, wow, it's like sea monsters everywhere. You know, yeah. just like, it is like mother nature at her finest just doing her thing. And so we were, we were eating them and, and we love them. And, you know, this is something that we did with our father and, you know, our grandfather and uncles and everyone. And we were just thinking about it. It's like, well, you know, everyone knows one have an oyster, but you know, we really do need to brand it so people know, you know, can can think about it on a on a on a restaurant menu somewhere that's not just in our backyard. So we said, you know, let's call it the legacies as a you know, a way to kind of pay respect to all the people before us that kinda of help us get where we are today. So our, you know, uncle, cousins, father, grandfather. So we, we made the joke internally, this is sort of the, the oyster that your daddy's daddy and your daddy's daddy's daddy, you know, knew and loved. And it's just that perfect Albeit not totally beautiful, but perfect, you know, balance of brine, salt, uh, and sweet flavors, and just the oyster that everyone has come to know and love uh, on the Linhaven. So that's the first product that we started selling uh, last Thanksgiving, and is still for sale today. Okay, excellent. And 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 you're absolutely right. It, it, that's 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 where it all started. That's what the the early settlers, George Percy, uh, the, who was a diarist on that first expedition that came around from the landing uh, Cape Henry and found these and called them very large and delicate in taste. But an oyster by any other name is still a sweet. And this is a sweet name too. Tell us about the Linhaven Fancy. So the, the Linhaven Fancy is, I, I came to learn later that while it was the name that the Queen of England called it, Fancies is also sort of um, a descriptor. In, yes. in, the, in the British language. So it's like it's, the Fancies of something would be of the highest quality. Yes. So when you have the Queen of England asking for the Linhaven Fancy, she's essentially demanding, you know, what she believes to be the best oyster. And what's what's cool about that, you know, we also trademarked that, and we created um, an ability, hopefully, for others to come after us to continue to try to make a higher and higher quality oyster. Is we we really wanted to make sure that this push, which is sort of in our uh, mind, the second push, like the reinvention uh, or the reintroduction 
of this oyster of the world because the Linhaven oyster had a real kind of renaissance about let's say five, seven, ten years ago. Um, and my family, you know, my cousins, uncles were a, part, were a part of that. But it's really taken a hit, uh, and COVID was no help. And so it's really kind of been hard to go around. You, you can barely find a a Linhaven oyster in any of our local restaurants. If you try, there's probably less than ten percent carry them. So. You know, we do our best to bring the, the legacies to everyone as clean and as fresh and consistent as possible. But we really thought it was important to try to make a new product that was something that no one had ever seen before on, on the one Haven. So, so that's where we decided, okay, this is a, this will be a product that can really, you know, pay respect and, and do that brand of the one Haven fancies justice. So this is a super high cultivated oyster, which just means that it's not wild. It's a, it's a triploid oyster, meaning, it grows all 12 months of the year. Uh, we touch it all the time, meaning you know we give it this husbandry and the love that it takes to shake the cup perfectly. It has a really, really high you know meat to shell ratio, so you're not buying a bunch of shell in these huge oysters. When we open them up, they're only half full. You know they're a perfect size. The cup is beautiful. The color is beautiful. They're clean, um, and and they're just you know, as, as high of a quality oyster that we've ever seen come off of Linhaven. So we're we're really proud of it. We can't wait to to have more people try them out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of folks, I had this discussion with somebody the other day uh, on social media about the R months. And I'm like, you know, they're like, well, if you eat them during the summer, they, you know, you will never get any any oysters later because you're eating them all during spawning season. But that's what's so nice about the fancies and and others is they are cultivated and they're grown specifically to be eaten. They take the benefit of all their mirar, the wonderful waters around them, the mineralities, the flavors and everything. But they're they're delicious any time of year. And gosh, I can't think of any better time of year than summer when you can throw those suckers on a grill and roast them. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate because the, it is this old. It's not a wives' tale, but it's certainly not factually accurate either. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's there's no bad time of year to eat an oyster. Uh, a wild oyster, which are the legacies uh, that we sell, has a different sort of texture during a sure. very very small time of the year, and every oyster doesn't you know spawn at the very same exact time. So yeah. you may have some that are a little bit you know less plump. They may be a little um, more kind of. Uh, translucent or clear in color for a couple of weeks of that year, but that's it. And, and you can eat them totally healthfully. There's no problem at all. Um, but no. what's interesting, and, and on our side, the cultivated oyster, this is something that we committed to as a family, which is not just because these are uh, what we call aquaculture or cultivated oysters that don't spawn. They're you know, a triploid, which means that they are technically neutered and they don't spend any of their energy during the year to create more oysters. They just spend all their energy growing. And they're also yeah. far more disease resistant, et cetera. But what we promised as a family day one was anyone that buys our oysters, we're going to make sure that we are always putting more oysters in the water than you're ever buying from us. So you can always feel really, really good about supporting the First Landing Seafood Company and any of the Linhaven oysters from us is that you know that we are always going to put at least more than one oyster back in the water for everyone you buy from us. So you're always actually increasing the population of oysters, never decreasing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so now let, let's talk a little bit about, about oysters in general. How do you, Bay McLaughlin, like your oysters? I'm probably uh, as, as old school and easy as, as it gets. So we, we call them, you know, having them naked. I, I like them on just on the half shell. And 
I, I, I think it's funny because I, I never would have known this until we owned this oyster operation that uh, an oyster at the restaurant is great. But I can tell you the best oyster I've ever had is I just jump off the boat with a knife in my mouth and I swim down and I get them myself. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, and I just eat them right there, you know, neck deep in water and just eat them straight from, <laughs> from the farm. Um, but for, for those of you that don't, can't do that, um, I think there's two, two things I would always say is whatever you're doing and you're tasting them, just you know, do your best to just slowly add some things. If you're going to add lemon, do a single drop of lemon. If you're going to do Tabasco, do a single drop because a very, very, very small amount of any other sort of, you know, condiment really, really goes a long way. It can take away a lot of the actual natural flavor. So I always tell people to be sparing or kind of ramp your way up. And then w- one of my favorite recipes came from my father-in-law from up and outside of New York, which I never heard of, but tried this winter which is the Lenhaven oyster is natural miroir, like you said, kind of like the terroir for a wine, just the, the natural flavors from the water. I don't know how it works, but the Lenhaven oyster, if you give it a little bit of heat, almost has a natural butter flavor that comes out when you add heat, whether it's the grill or the oven or whatever it is. So when you do that and then you add one of your favorite bourbons, just two or three drops, you get the salty and the sweet. And I always tell people oh, it's yeah. like the chocolate it's like the chocolate covered pretzel of the of the ocean. I was like, it's it's unbelievable. So um, that's that's been my new recipe. If I'm gonna do anything, I hit a, hit it with a little bit of heat, a couple drops of bourbon, and just sling them back. Absolutely. Well, I always tell folks if you're going to eat them raw, at least eat the first one without anything on it. So you mm-hmm. get a baseline. So you really understand because it's almost to me, uh, an oyster is like enjoying a glass of wine. Uh, everyone is is resplendent in reflecting its place, its place of origin, you know, its place in the universe. And so if you do put anything on it, it is, you know, it can enhance it, but it can also at the same time take away from the very base of it. So I, I like to always at least start with just one right the way it is, you know, as God intended. And then if I need to do something from there. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, eat them however you like them, because, you know, everything that anything someone can do to buy and support oysters is amazing for the environment. So you know, whatever you need to do, just, you know, please support whoever you're supporting and buy, buy more oysters. It's good for, good for Mother Nature, for sure. That's right. That's right. So, now, what advice do you give folks picking out or selecting oysters? If they, if they go to uh, a place where, where y'all's oysters are sold or they just go to a fishmonger in general, what are you looking for? A couple of things you want to focus on right away from a health standard point of view is to make sure that none of them are open. That yeah. that can happen in transit. It might be that, that it gets too cold. Sometimes you can you know freeze an oyster and it'll it'll kill itself or it'll die and it'll pop open, uh, or it, it got too warm, or it was just old and, and it just happens. I mean, you can't control for this all the time, especially as things move through the you know supply chain logistics and whatever else. So that's the first one. Um, and if you if you have the option at let's say a market, what you want to do is you want to take uh, two oysters and you essentially treat them like rocks and you tap them together. And they should sound like rocks, dense, because there's a living animal in there with a bunch of meat and an amazing you know liquor or the juice. And if it sounds hollow, it means it's dead as well. And and so that's that's kind of the two step process from just a health perspective. Otherwise, if you're talking about just making your life easy, if you're shucking, is having an oyster that has a deeper cup versus a long, thin 
cup or shell, yeah. it's, it's yeah. easier to shuck them if they have a deeper shell. If they're more kind of skinny and long, kind of like that razor clam looking kind of oyster, yeah. that's going to that's gonna be very hard to shuck. It's probably going to fall apart, uh, which is it's still fine. You can still get the oyster out. But that, those are kind of, kind of like the quick tricks. Um, and then otherwise, it'd really be about cleanliness. One thing that really surprises me in how many markets you go to and oysters are just muddy and dirty and it makes it really a lot of work when you go home to, to really yeah. get them to the point where you want to eat them. So yes. you know, we, we, we clean ours like crazy. We're regularly told that we're the cleanest one, even oysters people have ever seen at restaurants or uh, in the markets or roadside where we sell. So that's something we pride ourselves on. But those are probably the three things that I recommend first and foremost. So you get those oysters home. What's the, if you're not going to eat them like right then and there, what's the best way of storing them? Well, this is also one of those, you know, kind of wise tales is that, you know, you've got to eat them right away or if they've been, you know, out of the water for a couple of days, you know, they could be dangerous. At the, at the end of the day, as long as they're in a cool environment, um, we try to keep everything under 55 degrees. It's sort of like the, the, the number. Cool is better, but that's sort of the, the, the north end of, of what you want to uh, pay attention to. Um, you want to keep, you want to, you know, ultimately just keep them in a cool, dry place. Um, the, the first thing that I think people make the mistake of is they use ice and then they let the oysters by accident uh, fall into the kind of melted ice water. And the yeah. problem with oysters there is that and once they sense water, they're going to open up. And so yeah. once a saltwater oyster opens up and hits fresh water, it's going to flush itself. So all yeah. that great, you know, salt, salt taste goes away and eventually the oyster will die. So, so the first thing is to, you know, if you can do it, just keep it in the fridge, put it in a, in a bowl, put, a, you know, a, a, a cloth over top of it if you want to, you know, keep some of the smell in. But ultimately, that's all you got to do. Just keep it in the fridge, cool, and you're good. You can, if you're going to eat them raw, we tell people you can keep it in the fridge for at least a week. It's, it's fine. If you're yes. going to cook them on the grill, you can probably keep them up to two weeks. You know, we, we prefer people to do longer. But, um, you know, we're, we always tell people to don't, don't worry about storing them. We ship them to you every single week. So <laughs> you don't have to keep them that long. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, so, so just give me one or two good tips on opening oysters, because I think that this is the big bugaboo for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. They get, mm -hmm. they get the, they get the oyster home and then it's like, oh my God, what do I do now? I don't want to cut my hand off. Well, we, we spend a lot of time actually on the roadsides when we sell to our customers on Fridays and Saturdays trying to educate them on that. We also shell, uh, uh, sell shucking knives and um, the shucking gloves, the, the kind of puncture-proof uh, or cut-proof gloves because we really think safety is first here. So I, I also feel like I tell people right away, say, hey, you know, have you, do you know how you're going to prepare them? How do you enjoy them? For someone who isn't sure, honestly, I'm not sure other than the fact that it's kind of novel and fun, that shucking is always the right way. <laughs> and what's great is an oyster, especially a lineage oyster, a teeny bit of, bit of heat goes a long way and makes your life a lot easier. So I actually yep. recommend for people that aren't are, are overwhelmed or potentially, you know, uh, scared to, to try shucking, I say, don't worry about it. You know, go ahead, pop them on the grill just as is, or put them in the oven in a pan. And you can just wait like a clam, it'll pop open or, or a muscle. Or if you still want to shuck it, give it some heat for a few moments. And it just makes it so much easier to pop open than the raw oyster because it starts essentially the muscle that holds the shell together starts you know, weakening and slowly kind of letting go. So you don't have to wait for it to pop. You can just put some heat on it and go ahead and, you know, for a few minutes 
and go ahead and put the put the shucky knife in the back of the we call it in the hinge. Um, for, first thing when you're going to go with the knife is you want to make sure that you're wearing a glove or have a thick towel around the oyster, uh, and certainly make sure that you're kind of pushing the knife away from you, not towards you or towards your other hand as best you can. Sure, and, 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 and there's a lot of, I really would recommend that a lot of people check out some videos and, and a, just know that you're going to mess it up. Oh my gosh. I cannot tell you how many oysters I've messed up in my life. Um, and, and all I can, all I, I kind of tell people from a chef point of view is if you're the one shucking them, I mean, you know, you mess up a few, it's good for you. You just eat them yourself. Right. So not not a big deal if you if you make a mistake. Everyone does, and even the best people that have been shucking their whole lives, you know, still mess up some oysters from time to time. So it's definitely a game of practice. Yes, yes, indeed. So now, there there are oysters grown everywhere, and you know they're they're on the east coast, they're on the west coast, they're in Europe, they're wherever. Why should folks enjoy Virginia oysters versus oysters from other places? Well, I think there's two elements there. The first is if you're from the region, it's it's really important to support your local farmers. You know, whether it be an aquaculture yes. farmer on the water or uh, a farmer on the land, is because yes. we're the yes. ones actually producing the food that creates you know jobs, helps the economy, and specifically when it comes to the environment, which you know this is probably unique to oysters. Oysters are, I think, one of the most um, you know environmentally friendly farmed products on earth from my understanding um they do only good <laughs> it's pretty yeah, incredible yeah, uh, yeah. They, they, they filter they sequester phosphorus and nitrogen they create habitats for their environments to protect wave action from hitting the land and eroding the land i mean it goes on and on and on and so if you and they're, and they're superfood i mean they're literally you know yeah. certified superfood so yeah. when, when it comes when it comes to buying local i mean for sure i mean you should definitely support america's first oyster which is the Linhaven oyster i mean full stop if you're, if you're anywhere even remotely near you know the Linhaven river virginia southern virginia northern part of north carolina you know richmond etc but if you aren't from the region you're traveling through you find our oyster somewhere in some other city it really is a unique flavor so we're really fortunate to be so close to the Atlantic Ocean where we get that nice saltwater flush twice a day from the from the uh, tides. So we're inland and protected enough where you can you know have protection from a various you know various issues you might find like if you're further close to the ocean, it's so salty that it's just overpowering, which you know, you might see that in a seaside oyster, you know, from the eastern shore or like a chickpeak salt or something. These are delicious oysters, but they're just boom, so much salt. Whereas if you go closer, you know, up into the Chesapeake further, you know, up into the Maryland areas and you get further and further from the ocean, and you get a lot more of that kind of land, freshwater influence, which again can make a nice oyster, but it starts losing that briny flavor that kind of reminds you that you're, you know, eating something from the ocean. So we're really lucky to have this perfect combination of, uh, you know, kind of a medium salinity oyster, but it also has a little bit of that kind of minerality and, and freshwater land taste and, and kind of, you know, buttery, buttery finish. And it's hard to find that, you know, because most of you think about longitude of where oysters are in the northern southern hemisphere or the northern part like Massachusetts or even up to Maine down to the Gulf. They're, they're going to be very dominant in flavor in one of those directions. Whereas we're very lucky to be in this perfect kind of middle category where we get all the flavors that you want, but in balance. So we're, I think that's probably when you look at an oyster sheet anywhere in you know the, the whole world, you'd be lucky to find something that has all of the flavor profile you're looking at for an oyster that's in a, such a good balance uh, as you would from a Lynn Haven oyster. 
I, I agree. They really kind of are the Goldilocks of oysters. And, I, and I've always found that to be so ever since I was first able to try them uh, 10, 12 years ago, whenever they first opened up at, for, for farming again after decades of being shut down, uh, when the Lynn Haven was finally clean enough to try. And, and they are just really the perfect balance. You've got the salinity, you've got the buttery, um, and, and they're, they're, they're plump, they're delicious, uh, they're, they're great raw, they're great roasted, they're, they're, they're great in so many ways, aren't they? Yeah, and it's funny. We, when we sell outside of the region for areas that may not you know, be a consistent oyster eating population, you know, maybe you know, some restaurants that are further inland uh, or not so close to the ocean or don't get seafood so often, we'll find that a lot of the consumers that aren't used to seeing them you know, are, are a little bit confused. Sometimes they expect a much bigger oyster and you taste it and there's not much flavor. You know, you can make a really big oyster that kind of just tastes like meat. <laughs> and yeah. that, you know, that, that's fine. And those are the ones that, you know, you're going to hit with a ton of Tabasco and ton of lemon and sort of just, you know, you might as well be eating the conks or gosh, who knows anything really, you know? And I think that the difference that we have and we're so fortunate again, is we've got this, you know, such an amazing, you know, sweet and, and, and savory flavor all in one. And, and briny flavor, it's it's really just hard to find. I eat I eat my brains out of oysters anywhere I go. I, I eat as many as I can get, and I'm consistently grateful and, and and surprised by just how amazing the flavor profile is of the Lenny oyster. Absolutely. Well, folks, be sure to join our Facebook page for more food news that you can use. Go to Facebook.com/slash/group/slash Virginia Eastern Drinks. I'm going to have a uh, some information on there for you and also some recipes. A big thank you to Bay McLaughlin for joining us on the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast. For more information on Lynn Haven Seafood Company, including where to purchase the oysters, recipes, and much more information, visit firstlandingseafood.com. That's firstlandingseafood.com. And Bay, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been a, a real treat, and I think it's time for me to go get shucking. <laughs> Thank you so much, Patrick. All right. You take care. You too. All right. Bye bye. Virginia is a state rich in history, including eats and drinks. In our Deja Chew segments, we explore the rich stories that flavor the Commonwealth. We all love eating at restaurants, but what's in a name? The first two restaurants began emerging in France in the mid to late 18th century. The concept of diners going into an eating house at the time of their choosing, setting at either a communal, which was often seen in taverns or private table, and selecting from a menu of a variety of dishes was revolutionary. The term restaurant comes from the root that also means restore or restorative. Early restaurants feature broths, soups, and other dishes that focus on restoring the health and well-being of their clients. In Virginia, the very first true restaurant was Daniel Schelling's Restorative, according to David Schills. Schelling advertised the opening of the restaurant in the September 4th, 1820 edition of the Norfolk American Beacon. It was located in, in quotes, the fireproof house belonging to Mr. Arthur Taylor, the third floor above the post office. The restaurant offered superior coffee early in the morning as well as soup prepared every day by 11 o'clock in the morning as well as beefsteaks, oysters, 
and other relishes at any time until 10 o'clock in the evening. No other tidbits about shillings have been found, according to David Shills, who is a food historian and author. He may be the same Daniel Schelling who died in New York City in 1825 at age 55. Whatever the case, he should be recognized as the first restaurateur in the Old Dominion, says Shields. Throughout time, the name of places to eat or drink have changed and evolved along with what is offered. And here's a few things to know. Coffee houses came into the scene in the 17th century, offering a bit more than a typical tavern. Much like a tavern, folks gathered to discuss happenings and exchange information, but offerings including drinkable chocolate, coffee, and tea, in addition to ale and spirits. A term one starts to see in the late 18th century and into the 19th century is eating house, used to describe a place to grab a bite and most likely a libation. It may be a prefix menu, set menu, set price, and often set time of service, or a la carte, an offering of food at the diner's pleasure and often offered upon demand. The term was often seen as the period when restaurant service was introduced, but that word was new and unknown to some. The name inn began springing up in the late 17th century to indicate that lodging was available, providing a distinction from a tavern, which may offer some overnight accommodations, but increasingly meant to be a place for eats and drinks only. Inns usually did offer food too, not only to guests, but also to the public at large. One of the early terms for taverns is ordinary, and the two were generally interchangeable. By the late 17th century and early 18th century, many began favoring the term tavern over ordinary. A public house, often shortened to pub, is a beer house, much like a tavern, in which the name is often interchanged, and it focuses on the servings of alcoholic beverages, largely ale, but often spirits and wine. Food is also served at pubs. And tavern. A tavern is a term that grew in favor in the late 17th century to describe a place to grab a bite to eat and a drink. Many taverns would accommodate overnight guests, too, but increasingly the word inn was used to differentiate between the two as a waypoint for eats and drinks as well as lodging. Well, for more eats and drinks history, visit us at virginiaeatsanddrinks.com. Here's a favorite interview from the archives of the Virginia Eats and Drink Show, heard Friday evenings from 6 until 7, on air in coastal Virginia on AM790 WNIS, and online everywhere at WNIS.com. No good story ever started with, here, hold my salad. It's beer we're talking about, and if you're looking for a new beer to hold on to, we've got you covered. Our eatspert, Jim Landry of Big Ugly Brewing in Chesapeake, shares his beer of the week, each week in our Facebook group, there are two beers that Jim reviews, one from Big Ugly and one from another craft brewery. It's all the food needs that you can use with APB information, suggested food pairings, and more. Well, tonight, though, Jim shares, joins us to share his picks for International Beer Day, which is coming up on August the 6th. So grab a writing pad and a pint of beer. And Jim, how's it going? It's going great, Patrick. How are you doing today? Oh, fabulous, fabulous. I love your picks. I can't wait to talk about these. It's so so fun to think to think about too. So so we're gonna go through some of the picks that you've made. 
Again, the theme here is International Beer Day. Uh, and of course, I was just in London. Oh my goodness, some of the beers that I tried over there, you know, wow, wow. But um, yeah, a lot of loggers have... over there. Loggers, uh, well, not loggers, I should say ales, like pub ales. They're very big on their ales. Yes, yes. And so, so good. But we're going to go through some of these because Big Ugly actually does some beers that's in the international style. And so I've had this one before. I love it. The Sidecar Saison. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a traditionally Belgian beer. And, and these Belgian beers, these Saisons, were brewed back in the old days. The farmers would brew them to basically satisfy the seasonal farmhands. So the good thing about a Saison is you can brew it at a very high temperature. You can brew a Saison and ferment it at about 90 degrees. Other beers you have to make keep them much cooler, but these you can do at your house. They're an easy beer for the home brewer. Okay. And back in the, the original Saisons, they might get a little bit of wild yeast and give them a little bit of uh, sourness, a little tartness to it. Ours is not like that. Ours is a strictly straight-up Belgian yeast, and it's uh, got a little bit of cloudiness from from um, wheat that we use, but it's a real thirst quencher, which is kind of why they, they brewed it for summertime. That, and that Belgian a, yeast yeah. gives it just a little bit of spice, too. Okay. Very, very good. I mean, that, that sounds absolutely amazing. So what, what kind of beer this is? What, what would it pair with food-wise? Food-wise, you can do a Saison with, I mean, it goes well with just about anything. Uh, but I would think uh, a lighter food. If you think Saison, think summer, and think lighter fare, maybe, uh, oh gosh, maybe like a chicken dish would go real well with this. Okay. Maybe grilled salmon or some kind of grilled fish or something like that. Oh, fish would be great with this. Yeah. Good, good. Well, now your next pick, I've had this before also, and I love this. Your BIMS, and, and of course, that's your your nickname. Uh, alter your, Ego. Yes, your <laughs> Alter Ego. BIMS Magic Berliner Bus. Uh, and boy, this is so delicious. Tell us about it. So uh, this is a Berliner Weiss. A Berliner Weiss is a sour, tart wheat beer. And you can't talk about international beers without bringing up Germany. And this is a German style of beer. It's uh, We use lactobacillus, which is what pretty much everybody uses to sour the beer. And it's the same bacteria that you'll find in yogurt. So it actually okay. gets fermented twice. The initial fermentation is with the bacteria, lactobacillus, and then when we get the sourness right to where we want it, then we put it in the fermenter uh, and we ferment it with regular yeast to eat the rest of those sugars up. It's it's a clear, light, um, kind of a golden ale, got a real nice tartness to it, and on its own, you'll get a real lemony flavor out of it. But the traditional way to serve this beer, if you go to Germany and order Berliner Weiss, you'll get you'll be asked either red or green. So the red, they give it a shot of raspberry syrup, and the green, they give it a shot of Woodruff syrup, which is a German herb. And the Woodruff gives it, I would describe it as almost a marshmallow type of flavor. And it's only 4.8%, so it's a real low alcohol beer, but a very tasty. We have about a half a dozen different syrups that you can get it in, but those would be the two traditional ones. 
Now, do you do you have the water syrup there? Yeah, we usually do. Yes, uh, it's getting harder and harder to find real woodruff syrup, but uh, we usually can get it. We get it from um, a German deli, and uh, somewhere I want to say maybe Philadelphia that imports it from Germany. Very good, because uh, May wine uh, is actually uh, wine that's infused with sweet woodruff, and uh, and it gives it that distinctive kind of um, green, herby, uh, sweet, grassy kind of flavor in the wine, too. So I would be very excited to try it in a beer. I've not had it that way, so that would be very, very cool. Yeah, it, it cuts down on some of the acidity, the sweetness, and, and just really changes the flavor around from that lemony to, like I said, almost a marshmallowy type of flavor. It's very mm. unique. Very good. And then here we go with probably my favorite of your brews because I, I'm just a I'm a loggerhead as the peak logger. Tell us about that. Peak logger is a Italian pilsner, and this is a fairly new style actually. But what the what we've done? You take a German pilsner, which is just pilsen malt and uh, yeast and and hops, usually European hops. And what we do with this one after we brew it and ferment it at the very end of fermentation and past that point, we add more hops to the beer. And what that does, it gives it just a little more, accentuates the hops a little bit more. You'll get a little more of that uh, bitterness and a little more punch to the beer. Uh, so the Italian Pilsner has gotten to be very, very popular. And that's exactly what Peak Marger is. And it's 4.3%. So it's very light. You know, when you think about uh, summer beers, uh, this is a, a good one for that. This would be great for like a cookout and that kind of thing. It's it's very, very tasty, very easy drinking. And it's a great beer while you're cooking out, too. If you're staying by the oh, grill. Exactly. Yeah, down a few of these and all is good <laughs> with the world. <laughs> so now I've also asked you to come up with some of your favorites, um, Beers that are truly international beers, not international styles. And so tell us about your, your first one here. So the first one is, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, West Veteran 12. That's why I didn't pronounce it. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> very smart, very smart. It's a, a Belgian ale, and it's actually a Belgian quad, they call it. So it's a big beer. It's 10% ABV. Oh, yeah. And it's a tough one to get. Oh, my gosh. I've had it a couple times, but it's uh, it's very difficult to get. And this brewery has been around since the 1830s, and uh, they know what they're doing. But this beer is it's funny because you have to call in advance and get your name on a list. You can only pick it up at the monastery, and they only allow you to get two cases per week. And you have to sign a pledge saying you're never going to resell it. You won't find it in the United States on very rare occasions. Um, unless you know somebody that went there and brought it back. Uh, about, I guess it was about 10 years ago, they needed a roof on the monastery, so they allowed a small shipment to be sold in the United States to pay for their new roof, and that was the first time they'd ever sold it outside of Belgium. But if anybody can, can get their hands on it, or if you're in Belgium, this beer is amazing. It was one of the number one beers in the United States for years, uh, it's got a real dark amber 
look to it. It's got a what we call a velvety mouthfeel. It's real smooth. Mm-hmm. And it's a little sweet. You get a lot of notes of dark fruits and raisins and caramel uh, and leather, which sounds weird in a beer, but when you taste it, you'll know it. Yeah, it's just really, really off the charts. Mm, that sounds absolutely amazing. I'll have to go over there and sign the pledge, and then break immediately break it. And <laughs> well, that's, that's how we get the first bottles of it. We bought it from a guy in California that owned a liquor store, and he said, "I can't sell it to you, but if you put another fifty dollars in with your uh, your order, I'll ship it to you." <laughs> I love it. It's all about semantics. Now, I've had this one before, the Anger uh, Celebrator. I've had this. This is such a beautiful beer. Yeah, so this is one you can get locally. It's a Doppelbach, which is one of my favorite styles of beer. It's a dark, real full-bodied yes. beer. Yes. Very complex flavor to it. Uh, alcohol is only 6.5% or so, but and it's a beer you can get at uh, you can get it at Total Wine. Uh, my favorite place to get it is over at the Beer Garden in Portsmouth, where they mm. often have it on tap. Yeah, we lo- we really, love really rich. We love Ke- yeah, we love Kevin and Stephanie Osfolk over there for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, they have a great beer selection, but that's one that uh, if for somebody wants an introduction to one of the best Doppelbachs you'll ever have, that's that's the one to try. Excellent. Excellent, and and so um, what 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 flavor profile should folks be looking for with this one? This one's going to be a lot of dark fruit, dark fruit, and a little bit of uh, just a just a hint of roastiness on it. But you'll get plums and and raisins. It's just uh, it's amazing. It's very complex, and it goes well with heavier meals too, like a big steak. Big fatty steak would go good with uh, with a celebrator. Mm, yes, that sounds excellent. And I've had this last one also, the Bonchin from Brasserie uh, de Francais, yada yada yada. Um, so, so one of those long European names, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, but boy, it's worth it's worth seeking out. So, tell us your your thoughts on this one. Well, you know, if I were strictly a wine drinker and afraid of craft beers. This is probably the beer I would go to. This beer is, it's a Flanders red ale. So it's going to be dark red in color and it has a lot of wine character to it. Thanks to the fact that they age it in red wine barrels. So it's got a little tartness in the the wine. You'll get apples, cherries, candy fruit flavors. Uh, It's really, really unique. And uh, very well done. It's, again, one of the best, I think, in this style of beer. And it's a Swedish beer. And the brewer is pretty uh, – he's, he's a funny guy. He, he, makes, he, he makes the rounds in the brewing world and uh, comes to the United States quite a bit. He's just a character. Years ago, I won a, a bottle of uh, Bon Chien from uh, a thing they had a charity event over at Young Vets signed by Jerome is his name. And I think it was a 2015 vintage. And he wrote on it, 2015, this was Elvis's favorite vintage. Huh. Which <laughs> I thought was funny. <laughs> Since Elvis was dead for 30 years before that. But um, yeah, well, that's, so he's that's, got, he's a, that's, that's what that's what a lot of folks say, right? 
Yeah, where <laughs> or is he? <laughs> or is he? Yeah. I don't know. If you go to Walmart at three AM, I've I've seen things. I, I just, I, it's a great beer though. And, uh, again, you can is, get that is, locally, so I would advise anybody that's looking for that's a wine drinker that wants to really break into craft beer, this is a good one to start with. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's one thing I like about and and we'll have that that complete name there too, which at this stage in the afternoon I'm just not willing to try to pronounce. But it is no, it's I've, my French is non-existent. Ah, you know my French is forty something years old, and uh, I mostly just remember the words that even in French we probably couldn't say because of the FCC. So we're just going <laughs> to leave. We're just going to leave it at that. Leave it at that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, good. So, just on a side note, what what are you what are you drinking these days? Oh well, Big Ugly just released another Imperial Stout, aged mm. in um, aged in rum barrels that previously held apple brandy. Oh my! And yeah. uh, I've had a few of those lately, and really enjoying them. Even though it's hot as hell out here, and People, some people will tell you that stout season is colder weather. For me, stout season is whenever you can get a good stout. So I'm drinking those and loving them. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it depends just on what you said your air conditioning to, too, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it can be winter in your house if you want it to be. It, it can, it can be. You know, as long as you don't mind. Pain Dominion Energy that bill, you know, it, sure, it certainly can. <laughs> well, very good. Yeah, no, I'm 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 really loving, you know, the lighter, crisper, you know, loggers and pilsners this time of year, and um, you know, something with substance. I'm I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking some of those those big name brands that are basically just flavored water, but something still that's light and crisp, but with some substance to it. And, yeah. There's uh, plenty of great breweries around here that are making some fantastic uh, Pilsners and light lawyers. Yes. So yes, yes they're out and, there. And, and, and definitely, definitely seek those out because, you know, you're not only supporting local, but it's just going to be such a better quality product. Than some of those, you know, yada yada lights, you know, that that you see the huge billboards and everything else for. Right, right. Beer with flavor. Uh, yeah, you know, some of that stuff is like, why bother? I mean, why bother? Just just drink a seltzer water, you know. Right. You know, yeah, definitely. Well, folks, you want to be sure to join our Facebook group so that you can enjoy beer, uh, Jim's beer of the week post. And also, we're going to have all of this information for you as well. Go to facebook.com slash group slash Virginia Eats and Drinks. And for more information on Big Ugly Brewing, because you got to get down there. you got to check it out. Really cool place. All kinds of neat old cars, big garage-type uh, facility, uh, entertainment, food trucks. So much to do. I mean, it's just really a, a, a wonderful, wonderful place. Go to facebook.com slash group slash um, Virginia Eats and Drinks for more information and for Big Ugly, biguglybrewing.com, uh, biguglybrewing.com. And Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's always a treat to chat with you. You always leave me very, very thirsty, too. 
<laughs> oh, it's enjoyable, Patrick. Cheers. All right. Cheers to you. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast, serving you all the food news that you can use wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to join us again. And for more information on Virginia Eats and Drinks, visit virginiaeatsanddrinks.com. I'm your host, Patrick Evans-Hilton. Mm-hmm.